Jakub Dettoni, and this is the FDI podcast. Welcome to the second episode of Fortress FDI, our mini-series about rising investment scrutiny and protectionism around the globe. After discussing the case of Australia last week, today we will connect with Brussels, where the European Commission issued new guidance on the screening of foreign investment in March, urging each member of the Union to set up a full-fledged screening mechanism to monitor foreign investment. Joining the FDI podcast from Brussels, we have Paulette van der Schweren, a partner with law firm Meyer Brown, and her colleague Edouard Gergondet, an associate with Meyer Brown. Paulette, Edouard, it's great to have you both on the line today. Thank you, Jacopo. Thank you for having invited us to this podcast. That's a great pleasure. So let me start for, for, from the new guidance on the screening of uh, foreign investment issued by the European Commission on uh, March 25th. Uh, the very first line of the document reads, the European Union is open to foreign investment, which, which I feel that it's, a, it's quite an interesting way to start a document outlining uh, pretty stringent principles for the screening of foreign investment. Paulette, Edward, can you give us a feeling of the political and market environment that eventually led the European Commission to issue this uh, new guidance? And then we can get to the details of uh, this document. Yes, certainly, Jacopo. When the Commission says the European Union is open to foreign investment, I think, and I will also defer to Edouard, but that comes also from the background that led to the basic regulation, the Foreign Direct Investment Screening Regulation, which also uh, said that um, the European Union would be remain open to foreign investment and was also uh, adopted against the background of the EU member states, with some being more in favor of an open investment uh, background than others. So I think this opening statement reflects this political will uh, of the European Commission and the EU member states to say we want to regulate the foreign direct investment, but we want to stay open as well. And as a matter of fact, and I think to some extent COVID shows that as well, is we need this foreign direct investment as well in order to keep our economy and our industry going, especially in the aftermath of the pandemic. Edouard, you want to add something to that? Sure. Uh, one thing also to remember, and that's the reason why the Commission, every time it talks about foreign direct investment screening, it starts by saying that the EU is open to foreign investment. And the reason for that is that the principle enshrined in the European treaties is that there should be a free movement of capital between the EU member states, but also with third countries. So the general idea when the EU starts by saying we are open to foreign investments is uh, to reiterate and emphasize that foreign investment screening remains an exception to the principles under EU law. Absolutely. And I guess I hear they are trying to thread a, a very fine line between uh, exactly uh, upholding the principle of openness to freedom of movement of capital enshrined in the European funding principles, but also obviously, on the other hand, the feeling 
there must be some regulation for foreign investment, particularly in the wake of what has happened in the past 10 years. I think that one element that is very interesting is that last year, the European Union published this report on foreign investment, where it shows that foreign investors, meaning extra uh, investors uh, uh, coming from, from outside the European Union in 2016 controlled about 45% of the assets of uh, European listed companies, um, whereas just in 2009, that was that percentage was 20%. So obviously, in the wake of the, the global financial crisis, uh, uh, we have seen a, a big increase of, of uh, operation uh, uh, driven takeovers, m and uh, if not even foreign direct investment, driven by extra EU uh, investors. And obviously there, is a, there are clear reasons for that. And, and probably all this new regulation obviously is also a reflection of, of what we have seen in the market in the past 10 years. We've gone through a development between the foreign direct investment regulation that excludes portfolio investment from the general framework set on, uh, out in the FDI regulation, and now in the guidance where it comes back to portfolio investment and to the capital movement, as, as Edouard indicates. So that in itself denotes a, a movement and a development, although this is just the guidance and is not uh, legally binding, but it casts a framework for the for the member states. The Commission kindly reiterates what the case law has indicated in terms of where can you derogate from the freedom of movement of capital towards intra-EU uh, capital movements versus uh, movement from outside the EU, um, and how to use the case law. So that in itself is a movement compared to the FDI regulation that was adopted earlier. This is a very interesting point, and we have seen a similar uh, regulations, uh, for example, in the U.S., uh, the, the latest reform of uh, uh, the CFUS uh, focuses particular length on, on private equity, for example. So, so also like portfolio investment now is falling under, under the, the, the lens of, of uh, regulators under the scope of FDI screening mechanism. But do you want to give us an understanding of what are the other uh, new elements that this guidance issued uh, in March introduces? Well, first of all, one point to consider is that the new guidance, uh, although it does refer to the healthcare sector, it's actually much more transversal. Um, and it's pretty clear from the text of the guidance because it says that it's relevant, including for the healthcare sector, but not exclusively. It also addresses, if I may, Edouard, it also addresses more the coordination mechanism between the, uh, between the EU member states and the Commission. And it emphasizes, in my mind, also the fact that uh, the interest of other EU member states outside the member state of investment needs to be taken into account. That is something that comes up in my mind when I'm thinking of the guidance, because it does that more than the FDI regulation does. Um, so that is an element that I would also um, uh, emphasize. Other than that, the fact that capital movement uh, is highlighted in the guidance is also a main issue for me. Yeah, another point. Uh, the Commission also says one of the key principles of the FDI regulation was that it did not compel member states to implement a screening mechanism. Um, basically, it says in clear-cut terms that if you want to implement one, you can. If you don't want to, you can as well. Uh, with the assurance of the guidelines, that 
commission stance seems to have somewhat switched because the commission is now expressly calling upon member states to uh, implement and introduce a screening mechanism if they don't have one, and even if they have one, to reinforce it to make sure they have a full-fledged uh, screening mechanism. And that, that is a big step because traditionally, the FDI regulation is supposed to be a compromise between those member states that are more open to FDIs and those that are, uh, let's say, more reluctant or more willing to control FDIs. So the Commission is actually taking a big step forward by calling on all member states to actually do something and, uh, and review investments in their territories. The factors that are listed in the FDI regulation, like the media, like uh, protection of essential industries, those were already in the FDI regulation considered to be non-exhaustive. But perhaps the emphasis in the guidance is now more clearly on the fact these are just a number of illustrative examples of industries where you could have a public interest or a public order interest, but these are not exhaustive. And that comes out more clearly in my mind from the guidance. The guidance specifically mentions, for example, the health sector, but also, also widens the scope of its principles, exactly as you're saying, to, to many other sectors, technology sectors, industrial sectors. Uh, so-called strategic sectors from, from the, the, if we see them through the prism of, of uh, national security, uh, which obviously can be interpreted as a very broad uh, concept. But I think that also another interesting element is the fact that we are not just talking about uh, strategic assets anymore, but we are also talking about distressed assets. So we are also kind of like bringing in uh, some more uh, context and and uh, specific circumstances to what we have uh, uh, experienced in the market in the past three months with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic? It's a pretty thin line, actually, because if you look at it, the guidance does refer to distressed assets, but at the same time, it also emphasizes that you can't have restrictions based on economic consideration. So the okay. mere fact that assets will be distressed is not enough to justify an investment screening. It's more an explanation as to why there might be a need to intervene to protect uh, strategic assets or assets that are relevant to security and public order uh, because they are now in a distressed situation linked to the COVID situation. It nevertheless, as Edouard says, is a thin line because I still have the impression that even though you cannot invoke economic factors, the fact that you're in, you, you have to deal with distressed uh, assets, it, it will make it somewhere more easy to, to, to go over the thin line and to find that the secure, uh, public security and public order are in danger and that something has to be done. So it is really a very thin line. Economic factors, yes, but distressed assets, if it comes close to any of the factors or critical inputs or anything else, it will make it easier to make a finding that uh, public order and, and uh, security objectives are in jeopardy. Here, the trade-off between uh, uh, public interest, but, but the interest of the single businesses is even more evident because uh, if we are talking about distress, distressed businesses, uh, probably those distressed businesses, they would need uh, injection of capital from uh, from inside the European Union, from outside the European Union. So I wonder 
if extra EU investors will be more hesitant in, in investing in distressed uh, businesses somehow belonging to sensitive uh, sectors or, or industries, what can, can be the alternative for, for, for them? Well, I think that there, again, there is a balance. All of the EU member states, the European Union, will need the foreign investment as well mm-hmm. to uh, have industry survive and thrive. Um, will companies, will third country investors have to be more careful? Most definitely. Um, um, and as well as the top of their investments, for sure. But will that necessarily deter them from investments? Perhaps not. I'm not sure that CFIUS in the U.S. has deterred investments in the U.S. as well. It mm. makes it more burdensome. It makes it more, you need to be more attentive in, in selecting your investment, in organizing your investment. But will it necessarily deter investments? Perhaps not. Uh, one point perhaps to stress is that if it's really about uh, a sector that is relevant to security and public order, there should be uh, some mechanisms to help them cope with the COVID crisis, notably with the uh, recovery fund budget that was agreed uh, yesterday by the different EU member states. Or whether the budget is sufficient for that matter as well, which we have to deal with such a magnitude of of consequences of the pandemic that the budget that is made available at European level or at EU member state level may not be uh, sufficient anyway. Just as a time reference, obviously we are recording this podcast for those that will listen to it in the future on uh, July 22nd and, and the recovery fund, uh, a deal on the recovery fund uh, has been struck just a few hours ago, like uh, probably less than 24 hours ago. And that's uh, obviously a massive breakthrough uh, in terms of a European level, in terms of like agreeing, agreeing on, on resources to, to support uh, uh, member states' economies. Uh, and that obviously, yes, can provide some, some alternative funding for, for alien businesses. Uh, and another interesting element of the, of the guidance is that uh, there is specific mention to, to, to startups and uh, small and medium enterprises. And this kind of like kind of brings to the fore really the increasing importance that startups are playing uh, in our economies, uh, not just in terms of uh, the, the amount of business that they generate, but the kind of innovation and research they, 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 they can develop and they can, that, that can be also very sensitive. For sure. And I'm thinking about a news uh, that came out yesterday is that uh, the Belgian government is asking a small startup to develop the, the track app for instance. Um, And I'm thinking about the German experience with Mr. Trump also trying to... uh, So, uh, yes, for sure, in this type of situation, startups um, will be be a prime target for uh, for protection by the EU member states to make sure that these essential developments and these essential technologies remain available also to to the member state of investment, but again, as the as the guidance also states, to the other EU member states as well. Uh, that will probably be true for those who are developing the vaccine, for instance, or the medication. Those are, you know, those are examples that immediately come to mind, but they are probably very illustrative of what the guidance had in mind. 
And it's also interesting because it's one point that, again, goes beyond what the FDI screening regulation requires. Because when you speak about the harmonization criteria in, in the regulation, they do not deal with precisely what type of targets you should cover. And in particular, it doesn't say if you should implement or not uh, a value threshold for an acquisition to be subject to screening. And if you look at the various member states, uh, for instance, in the UK, you have such value thresholds, but you don't have them in, in France or in Germany. Um, so that's one interesting point, because again, it's the commission indirectly telling the member states how they should design their screening mechanisms. The emphasis on SMEs, Jacopo, is not particular to this foreign direct investment uh, mechanism and the guidance. We've seen it in totally different areas where the Commission, since a couple of years or a few years, has given particular emphasis to the SMEs. And I'm thinking in a, uh, in a practice area where we are pretty active as well in, uh, with regard to, for instance, trade defense mechanisms, where the Commission is, is, is doing everything it can to make it possible for European SMEs to also lodge uh, anti-dumping complaints or anti-subsidy complaints. So it's not, not something that is characteristic. It's something that is part of EU policy since a couple of years. Okay, okay. Um, so, Edward, you mentioned that uh, the, uh, another new element is the fact that the, the, the guidance urges, the European Commission through this new guidance now urges uh, member states, any member state, to, to implement some sort of uh, screening uh, mechanism. So, um, how has this uh, new guidance been received by, by, by the market and by, by actually by, by member states and by the single governments in member states? Do you, do you see more countries taking steps uh, towards uh, uh, upgrading their FDI screening regulation, if not even like uh, establishing a, a fresh uh, screening regulation altogether? No, most certainly, Jacobo. Um, we've seen a, a very important number of member states taking steps to either upgrade their screening mechanisms or to implement new screening mechanisms. Uh, for instance, you have the, let's say, the bigger ones. You have France and Germany who significantly stepped up the screening mechanism, uh, as an example, France decided to extend it to biotechnologies, definitely, and also until the end of 2020 to reduce the threshold that triggers uh, the threshold of acquisition of voting rights that triggers the screening mechanism from 25 to 10 percent. You also have other member states which took steps to, 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 to upgrade their mechanism. That will be Spain, uh, Italy, uh, the Netherlands, I think. Uh, a lot of them. And you also have some member states who which decided that now they would start introducing screening mechanisms. And there was a consultation that was launched in Ireland uh, to basically define what should be the framework of the Irish uh, screening mechanism. Belgium reportedly has introduced a bill uh, to, to start screening uh, foreign investments. A lot of them have reacted to, to the guidelines and have started to implement or upgrade their mechanism. And going forward with the coordination mechanism in place, with the exhortation in the guidance, with the annual reports of the European Commission and the uh, reports or the comments that will be made by the Commission and the European member states, that will also be uh, additional fuel for those member states who still don't have 
a foreign direct investment mechanism to implement it for sure. That will be a conducive element to uh, for all member states to put something in place. Uh, has the European Commission any power at all to veto uh, foreign investment moving forward? Or this, we are still in the realm of uh, principles, but then it's, it's up to the single member states uh, to act. The principle remains that member states are responsible for the final decision, whether to accept, condition, or uh, decline, reject foreign investments. What the Commission can do has not changed. It cannot formally veto a transaction. That being said, the mere attention and the mere fact that the Commission is looking into an acquisition Um, that may at least influence, to a certain extent, the final decision of a member state, especially if there are also other member states uh, w- which will be still able to, to, to provide comments. And if other member states and the Commission are, are pushing for member states to veto a transaction, that will most certainly uh, bear significant impact. And let's not forget as well that for those EU member states that don't have a foreign direct investment screening mechanism, um, the Commission and the member state can still ask information on foreign direct investment and then can still give their positions or make their opinion known. So that in itself, I think, is an, is if you don't have a foreign direct investment mechanism in any EU member state, you, your foreign direct investment can still be subject to scrutiny. That in itself is an, is an important element that will come into play for those, what is it, uh, 10 or 15 member states that still don't have a foreign direct investment screening mechanism. And, and Paulette, you mentioned you are not really sure whether, for example, a new regulation with uh, CFIUS in the US has deterred any any new foreign investment into the United States. Um, we, with regards to this new guidance uh, from, from the European Commission, that obviously we shouldn't forget that follows the new, uh, actually, FDI screening framework that was approved last year. What's the, the feeling that you get from, from the market, from your clients? Uh, what kind of feedbacks do you get? And, and do you believe that, that there could be a deterrent element or rather it will just make uh, for transactions involving extra EU investors a bit more, as you said before, burdensome from a compliance perspective? From my point of view and from what we hear, it is not necessarily a deterrent to direct investment, but it is certainly a red flag to be more careful in selecting the target and in uh, setting up dire- immediately the, 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 the investment in such a way as to decrease any objections under the EU member state foreign direct investment screening mechanism and to limit any possibility for mitigation or intervention. So it's, it's, I would say it's more burdensome than a clear deterrent. No, I agree. It's part of uh, of other mechanisms that are to be considered when you want to plan an acquisition, but it's only one more element to be considered. And it's not, I don't think it's a deal breaker in itself, uh, but it's much like merger control. You have to consider it. You have to analyze your risk and what you, you can do to, to protect yourself or to make sure that your file will be accepted. But in and of itself, it's not enough to justify uh, withdrawing from an acquisition. 
do you believe that that uh, it would give uh, European counterparts more uh, bargaining power at the negotiating table with an extra EU investor, uh, more bargaining power in terms of like uh, pushing for more, for example, technology transfer or pushing for uh, more job creation? Uh, do you believe that could be part of the story? Yeah, that could be part of the story. It will certainly make it more palatable, especially at the local, uh, regional or national level, I think, Jacopo. And it will make it, uh, it, ultimately, it's the member state of investment that takes the final decision. And if more, uh, if there is more value added created, if there's more e- uh, employment created in the EU member state of investment, it will, it will sway to a certain extent. And if there's more technology transfer, it will sway more the, the authorities that ultimately have to make the decision. That, I think, is certainly the case. And that will possibly be more the case in certain member states than in others. It could also help to leverage some quid pro quo, meaning that member states, when negotiating uh, in relation to the acquisition and whether or not to authorize it, could try to get or use their leverage to precisely get more access to, to the other markets, so the Chinese market, uh, via the company being acquired to make sure that, uh, let's say, there is a win-win situation at the end of the day. It's clear that all these new regulations in the European Union, as, as, as elsewhere, um, they define new strategic sectors. In some cases, they also lower the thresholds that trigger some type of FDI screening, but, but none of them really... Uh, single out any foreign investors that could be uh, a possible target or more of a target of these uh, screening regulations. But it's clear that implicitly, at least, there is a clear understanding that that, the Chinese investors will be, or at least least like investors controlled by foreign states and governments, will be definitely uh, a main focus of these uh, FDI uh, regulations. And frankly, we have already seen it. If we, if we go and see the investigations that have been done by local authorities in the past four to five years, obviously uh, state-owned foreign entities have been a, a main focus of uh, local authorities. That is clear. That is for sure. And it's not the only area where this is being the case. The white paper on subsidies is another example. We have the same example in trade defense. It, it is certainly something in the fore of the European minds and in the fore of some EU member states' minds. Is it the only target? Probably not. Uh, I'm not so sure that the U.S. investors or Russian investors will not be targeted by this thing either. But it is clear that SOE companies from China will be uh, targeted primarily if they they want to invest in Europe. That's for sure. Generally, this this investigation used to be triggered on the base of national security or public interest or public uh, public order. More and more, I, my perception is that the scope of this this the narrative is being widened. To, to embrace things like uh, technology, sovereignty, economic security. What is the narrative? How has the narrative evolved at the European level? It's 
sort of the name of the game. I mean, you, you're supposed to take action based on public order or public security, and, and that will be your, let's say, official justification. But a lot of measures that are justified on these grounds will have at least an element of protectionism in them as well. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not just the EU. If you look at the US, for instance, the Section 232 measures on steel and aluminium are justified on grounds of threat to national security, and yet they are widely perceived as being protectionist in nature. So at the end of the day, you do have probably an extension of the scope of targets. What we perceive as well, at least what I perceive, is that it can be justified, and it is justified because when you talk about emerging technologies, you also speak about basically your know-how and what you know how to develop and something you want to protect, at least in the short term, before it's widely available so that your, com your companies can keep their competitive. So there is an economic element to it, but there is also a national security element to it in that you don't necessarily perceive all the potential applications of those emerging technologies. But that is coming back to the thin line that we mentioned earlier, Jacopo, because what is the, th what is the dividing line between purely economic considerations and public interest or public order concentrations when you have an industry that is ailing, that needs to be rescued, but that you're going to surrender to a foreign or an SAOE company or a foreign entity. So it's difficult to clearly divide the line there and saying this is purely economic if there is also a reason to make sure that the industry can survive in the territory of its investment and can, can to continue to do R&D and can continue to develop technology for the value added of the local economy. What does this tell us about uh, the, the, the future trade and investment policies of the European Union? Uh, we also have to keep in mind that this is a very young uh, uh, commission that obviously they found themselves in a very, uh, uh, very uh, stormy waters uh, right, right away, with obviously with the COVID nineteen uh, health crisis and uh, and the ensuing economic uh, crisis, they have a very long mandate ahead. These principles, uh, uh, for for many reasons, this new guidance on the screening for investment, for many reasons, introduces new elements uh, that that can be contextualized, but some of them might or may survive even beyond the COVID-19. So, Paulette, I understand that you've got a very deep experience with uh, trade law and trade regulation at, at, uh, in different, uh, at the European level. So what do you believe that this new guidance tells us about uh, the future investment and trade policies of the European Union? I think the EU trade policy is somewhere at crossroads now, where we are moving away from a more liberal trade policy, and that is a bit of a, a misnomer on my part, because we always had, fr from the point of view of a trade defense practitioners, we always had trade liberal and trade protectionist EU member states, and that is a bit of a generalization. Mm -hmm. But I think we are moving away from that towards an European Commission and European Union that is trying to reinvent itself in, tr in terms of trade policy. Um, but has not yet find, found exactly the right balance between making sure that its products can be exported, making sure that it has access to all the raw materials that are, that are needed for its own industrial policy and protecting its industry. And we are at crossroads 
with the trade policy review, with the, um, the white paper on subsidies, with this foreign direct investment screening, against the background where we don't know what is going to really happen with the World Trade Organization and to what extent the World Trade Organization and its dispute settlement well, will be able to uh, keep alive and to thrive. So for me, we are at the crossroads and it is not clearly uh, identified in my, in my mind where we will go and where we will end up. The new commission is relatively young, but they are also, in a way, pursuing uh, the same path uh, that the former commission started to follow toward the end of their mandate. Uh, remember, former President Juncker said, the EU, uh, we are free trader, but we are not naive free trader. And that is, at least I, I see, uh, what the new commission is trying to exemplify. Uh, in a way, they are trying to play a much more assertive role and a bigger leading role on the international stage and notably in terms of trade policy. And I think that's what we should perhaps continue to expect uh, in, in the next year, is that a commission that tries, the way they put it, um, geostrategical uh, commission. So they are trying to perhaps play a, a bigger role and a more influential role uh, in the international trade community. Do you believe that this uh, sort of guidance and uh, new principles, uh, they also go in the direction of uh, making uh, bilateral uh, or regional relationships uh, uh, more a priority over the sort of multilateralism that we have seen uh, up until uh, a few years ago? I'm not so sure, Jacopo, that this would be symptomatic of that. We've, okay. What we've seen is an European Union that since uh, multiple years, and perhaps in an escalating fashion since uh, three or four years, has tried to uh, reach bilateral free trade agreements, mm -hmm. including investment treaties. Uh, that was part of, as Edouard said, already the trade policy of the uh, previous uh, uh, European Commission and is continued by the current Commission. I'm not so sure that that is directly linked to this guidance. It is part of the background that the WTO is, the EU is in favor for the, of the WTO and will go out of its way to make it thrive and keep alive, I think, or I hope. But at the same time, they also want to achieve a WTO plus for its member states and its industries uh, through the bilateral agreements with individual companies, uh, countries or individual group of countries. Yeah, yeah, I guess uh, that from this perspective, obviously, we all the eyes are on, on, well, on Brexit and also obviously on the U.S. elections uh, in yeah. November. Yeah. Um, that might obviously with a situation where. Uh, with a different president, probably also the, the impasse at the WTO level uh, will hopefully will be resolved, um, and there could be developments on on, on that side. I would say uh, a very final uh, remarks. So, so in this kind of like quickly evolving uh, uh, regulatory environment, uh, what are you? What is your piece of advice for your clients? inquiring about the best way best way to deal with this new uh, guidance and, and, and to deal with uh, the way different member states are uh, receiving these new guidances. Maybe we can, uh, we can go with Edward and then I'll leave a final remark to Paulette. My 
only piece of advice would be to undertake due diligence. Uh, it, it's pretty standard, but there is no one-size-fits-all answer. There is no one-size-fits-all solution for any business. So what you need to do is carry out your due diligence and make sure uh, what is relevant for your business, what is not, and how you can tackle it. I agree. And Jacopo, I would say, determine what sector of industry you want to invest in. The, uh, look at the national foreign direct investment screening uh, mechanism, see how it applies, and if there is no foreign direct investment screening mechanism in any EU member state and you want to invest, make sure that you look at the guidance at the foreign direct investment regulation, that you seek the temperature of what is living at the, at the level of the European Commission, because you can still have expo exposed um, investigations and exposed uh, requests for mitigating measures. So due diligence, yes, but that goes through uh, determining what is the target of your investment, in which country are you investing, and what is the local legislation. And if the local legislation it doesn't exist, make sure that you get the temperature of what exists at the level of the European Commission and your and the interests of your European member states before you set up your uh, your investment and make sure that you have the necessary leverage in terms of value-added transfers of technology, employment, or whatever have you. But um, it is, it is, we are living a bit in a different area or era as we did before in terms of investment, and that needs to be taken into account in the practical, practical working out of investment schemes and investment plans. Absolutely. I just wonder whether there will be ever a situation where member states might be, be enticed or compelled to compete on uh, also on uh, on uh, an FDI screening uh, uh, regulation level in the same way uh, European members have competed uh, in the past and still compete on, on for example on a, on a fiscal on a, on a, on, a, on a fiscal uh, regulation level with some countries trying to, to get an edge uh, in certain sectors uh, because of more liberal fiscal policies. Uh, I just wonder whether there might be member states willing to, to, to compete uh, or to, to highlight their more liberal um, attitude towards uh, uh, foreign investment screening uh, to highlight this to and uh, make it part of their business proposition. I think that you're right, Jacopo, that risks exist, but I think through the coordination mechanism going forward, that differences should be leveled off. Yeah. Because with the exchange of information, with the growing uh, harmonization of factors, such as through the group of experts, going forward, and that will not be done in one year or two years, but going forward, these differences should be leveled off. And I think that that is also the purpose and objective of the foreign direct investment regulation, to try and level off these differences amongst member states. Paulette van der Schwern, partner with law firm Meyer Brown, and uh, Edouard Jurgondet, an associate with uh, Meyer Brown, both based out of Brussels. This has been a very insightful conversation. Thank you very much for being uh, on the FDI podcast. Thank you, Jacobo. It was our pleasure. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This was the second episode of this uh, uh, mini-series on uh, FDI protectionism. We have been uh, to Australia, 
uh, a week ago. Now we have discussed European Union regulation. Next stop will be a member state of the European Union, Italy. Stay tuned and you can find all our podcasts on Spotify, Acast, iTunes or on our website fdiintelligence.com slash podcast. Until the next time. Thank you.